0: Hey everyone and welcome to the 74th episode of The Liam McCollum Show. Today, I'm excited to be talking with Matt Kibbe. He's the author of Don't Hurt People and Don't Take Their Stuff, A Libertarian Manifesto. He's also the president of Free the People, an educational organization advancing liberty. And he hosts a podcast called Kibbe on Liberty, where he interviews guests like Thomas Massey, Rand Paul, John Miltimore, and Reed Coverdale. I'll link to all of that in the description of this podcast if you want to check it out. And also, it appears I must have changed a setting in Zoom before this interview because there are a couple times where I'm speaking and the camera doesn't switch over to me. So just a heads up, if you are watching on YouTube, or odyssey with that, remember to subscribe to the show, give this episode a thumbs up and leave a comment. If you have any thoughts, here's my interview with Matt Kibbe. Thank you, Matt Kibbe for coming on the show. Hey, it's good to be with you. Yeah. I think I told you this when you came to Kalispell to the Montana libertarian convention, but uh, you're one of the first libertarians I ever discovered. I think, I think it was Pretty incidental, too. I I subscribed to Mug Mug Club, Steven Crowder's thing. And then that took me to Blaze TV, and I found your Deadly Isms show, which was incredibly influential for me. I think um, specifically the video on central planning was was really awesome. And there was this diagram of uh, authoritarianism at the top, and then I think it was a libertarianism at the bottom. And at the time, I was just conservative. So it kind of just like fractured my entire belief system. So I'm wondering if you can give a little bit of your background and what brought you to libertarianism. If there was a commentator that that really um, sparked your interest and how that got you to free the people.
1: Yeah. So um, uh, people that know me have heard the story, but I discovered libertarianism when I was 13 years old and I was reading the liner notes on a Rush album. Um, called 2112. And I'm old enough that that vinyl was the the means of consuming music back then at school again. But I always loved vinyl in the sense that you could read the liner notes and you'd learn about the band and you would, um, you know, read the lyrics and, and really sort of consume the music more substantially, perhaps than we do in the digital age. But but that album is dedicated to the genius of Ayn Rand. And I had no idea who that was at the time. But I Ended up stumbling across a uh, very old, beat-up copy of her novel *Anthem*, and I'm like, "Oh, that's that guy! I thought it was a guy. Like, oh, that's that guy that that my favorite band loves." And I I took *Anthem* home and I consumed it in in a single sitting, and I immediately went off on this this sort of follow the breadcrumb sort of quest to try to figure out what these these cool ideas were and if. And if you read enough Ayn Rand, she will tell you to read the Austrian economists if you want to understand economics. And, and so I went off and tried to find Ludwig von Mises, which I did as well. Um, by accident, I ended up going to Grove City College in Pennsylvania. And um, I had already read a lot of the Austrians before I got there. And I went there as a biology major. My dad wanted me to, to go to college, and I didn't want to go to college. So I was like, fine, I'll go there, which happened to be the town we lived in. And it wasn't until about a year into Grove City College that I got in an argument with a, a now very dear friend of mine, Peter Betke, who runs the the, um, the Hayek Center at George Mason University, one of the great Austrian economists of our day. And, and we had this ridiculous drunken argument about the proper role of government. And he's like, you need to be in the economics department here. And What's funny about that story is you couldn't Google that stuff back then, so it was it was purely accidental that I found um, a professor of economics named Hans Senholtz, at, who was the chairman of at Grove City College, and he's the same guy that taught Ron Paul economics, um, perhaps just a few years before I went to Grove City in the, the mid-1980s. So it's kind of cool that that I went through this whole circular process, and and here we are today, where where a lot of these ideas are are suddenly showing some some importance and some vibrancy that didn't seem possible when i was young
0: yeah and then um i i actually discovered your your organization a little bit after that free the people your your youtube channel and everything like that and you've you've made some really great documentaries over the years including um the the one that you made during the pandemic about the lockdowns and and everything like that, do you wanna just maybe share your story about that pandemic, um, the pandemic and where you guys were at when it first hit? I know you and Terry had um, some plans at the beginning, uh, kind of shook everything up and then you produced this documentary. And um, can you tell a little bit about the stories that uh, you came across while producing that documentary?
1: Yeah, so, so Terry and I, um, particularly in the last three or four years, have started doing um, talks together. And it's a it, it was it was accidental at first, but it became a very cool process where we we tell stories. And that's, you know, the entire mantra of Free the people is that, you know, most people do not consume knowledge and information the way I would as an economist and perhaps the way libertarians would, um, having read all of these these books that we've read. Um, And, you know, there's, uh, you know, libertarians are sort of famously logical and perhaps a little bit spectrumy and awkward, but but normal people process the world through their emotions. And there's there's nothing wrong with that. That's just what it what it's like for for humans um, to do. So when we started Free the People, we wanted to translate um, the values of liberty into really compelling stories and specifically targeting. Uh, young people who might not ever read some of the books not that, that i read when i was a kid I, I think any strategy that involves plopping a huge copy of human action on everybody's um, desk is 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 bound to failure so so we like to tell stories and it's better if you can find a story that is is based on on an individual because so many of our theories are are a little bit hard to explain because it's all about potential. It's all about um creating something that didn't exist before. It's all about sort of stepping up and rising above above your circumstances and what the what the government might do to you um, to succeed. And that that goes all the way back to to why I think Ayn Rand is a compelling novelist. So at the beginning of the at the beginning of the lockdown, Terry and I were, were actually giving a series of of talks about Ayn Rand's philosophy in, in Batumi, Georgia, the, the country of Georgia, not the state of Georgia. And you know, we weren't sure if we were going to go because there was already talk of lockdowns, but, but I'm old school in the sense that when I commit to do something, I, I do everything I can to keep that commitment. So we went ahead and we flew to Georgia and we gave those talks. And again, it was it was more it wasn't really about objectivist philosophy. It's about the really compelling stories that Ayn Rand tells and the heroes and heroines that she creates and and how that might translate to the practical business of, of living every day. Um, we had to leave Georgia a day early because we were afraid at the time that uh, Trump was going to close the border um, because there was all sorts of ridiculous rumors going on. So we, we made it home. Um, and, um, us being us, we had booked a, a short family vacation with, with a couple other couples in, um, the, the British Virgin islands. So we turned around and we got back on a plane and went to the British Virgin islands. And it was there when, when I wrote my first piece about the lockdowns and I, I haven't, I'm still proud of, of this piece that I probably wrote about March 10th of 2020, And I wasn't thinking about about sort of the Hayekian critique of scientism and maybe we can get into that because I think it's it's relevant to COVID lockdowns. I was thinking about Frederick Bastiat and and Bastiat in his book, Economic Sophisms has this, by the way, he's a storyteller as any good economist actually is. Um, He was talking about this miraculous thing that happens Every time the people of Paris wake up in the morning and they, they go to bed and they have not a care in the world and they don't imagine what might happen if food didn't show up um, in the market the next day. And this, of course, is in the eighteen hundreds. Um, but the but but the metaphor still applies. And he he's talking about this infinitely complex division of labor. And and all of these people that are working to serve those those Parisians who are sleeping so soundly. And it's almost as if a miracle happens where this stuff shows up. But but nobody really cares because it's there. And I was thinking about that in the context of the supply chain, which we now know is not something that that survives all sorts of political meddling. And and I wondered what would happen at the time. You may remember the hashtag was stay the fuck home. And I I was particularly riffing on that. I'm like, um, surely um, the politicians and the people that are scared and the epidemiologists who are telling people to stay home, they don't really mean it because if everybody stayed home, there would be no food in the morning, there would be no energy. There would be nothing that we just assume um, will be there when we want to live our lives. And what I didn't realize at the time, which I now very much realize now was that the the politicians and the planners that wanted us to stay home, were actually talking about creating two classes, you have the laptop class, um, the elites, particularly government classes and people that sort of feed off of that, the people that never ever worried that they might lose their jobs during this pandemic. um, They wanted to stay home and have the rest of us bring food to their door. And you've seen this again and again and again. Uh, most re- recently, with uh, um, nurses and other health healthcare practitioners who probably got COVID, not staying home, are now being fired because they refused to take this vaccine. But my but my original instinct was um, this is going to be a supply chain disaster because people can't stay home for extended periods of time without breaking all of these links that create that infinite infinitely complex and beautiful web of distribution that Frederick Bastiat was talking about. So that that was my instinct. Um, We, you know, Terry and I never really locked down. Uh, We did for a couple weeks. We were waiting to see what was going to happen. And at the time I saw the demonization of of Rand Paul. You may remember Rand Paul was, was one of the first guys to test positive, asymptomatically tested positive. And man, did they try to destroy him for getting a test, but not not hiding in his house until he got the results from the test. You remember this? And I'm like, Okay, I don't, I don't want to do any damage to my organization. So we we stayed home for a couple of weeks. But then we started to the extent that it was legal, we started uh, traveling, obviously, in the United States, uh, living our lives. And and I'm glad we did because life is short and precious and, and not living your life is is probably the worst mistake you could make.
0: Yeah, there's a quote by I think it's Jack London that that keeps coming to mind. It's like uh, the, the function of man is to live. I shall not spend my days trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. And And that quote just keeps coming back to me because I do think that it is almost the primary lesson about the pandemic and just about humanity is that like we aren't just machines to be locked down, like Sotomayor, or I think it was Kagan that said in the Supreme Court case, she's like, what's the difference between a human and a machine? You know, we, we aren't machines that can not just be locked down. There's a there's a purpose for us being here. We're supposed to go out and live. And I think that that's a message that you've really been able to communicate through Free the People. Um I, the, the beer is freedom videos come to mind where, where it's like we're just supposed to experience and where we're supposed to have um, these experiences in life. Um, and, and I think maybe we should get into the conversation about scientism. I, I had it later on my list, but uh, in, in your series about the deadly isms, I, I don't know if I could have imagined that, you know, this authoritarianism mixed with scientism would, would be a, a problem. Um, so yeah, why don't we just talk a little bit about scientism and what Hayek was talking about?
1: So I, I got to look up that quote. I did not see um, either Sotomayor or Kagan um, compare us to machines, but it's um, it's pretty telling because if you look at and this this applies directly to the to the notion of scientism. If you look at the way that central planners think about human beings, um, we are definitely just cogs in a wheel or pieces of a puzzle, um, were part of a collective. So the, you know, the, the individual literally doesn't matter. And you can, you can see that play out again and again and again, when, um, authoritarian dictators trying to implement some sort of collectivist philosophy. Um, they, they, they can't possibly care about individual human beings. And, And that's why so many people die because again, it's just, it's all about, it's all about the collective, and you, and you can see um, she, the, the dictator in today's China, very much think about that. My cat just joined us, so it's it'll get interesting here. Um, don't step on that, buddy. You want to say hi? What's its name? This is Reardon, by the way. <laughs> all my all my cats are hardcore Randians, um, and uh, they. I I could get into my whole theory about pets as well, but (laughs) Do you
0: consider yourself a Randian or an objectivist just on that, on that point?
1: You know, I, I don't. And in large part, because I don't like isms generally, Mm -hmm. I use, I use the word libertarian, um, because I can't think of a better word, but I sort of agree with Frederick Hayek when he talks about, you don't mind if he joins, do you? No, I don't care. Um, Uh, You know, he he laments the fact that we lost the word liberal because liberal has context and meaning and and liberal before it was perverted in its meaning just meant free. It meant um, all these values that we very much care about. Um, Can you take me? Is is this by the is this a video thing that we're doing?
0: Yeah, but it doesn't matter if if he it's honestly kind of (laughs) cool. But if you want to get him
1: off, you can. No, no, he's. it, you know, all the all the dog lovers will hate this, but, um, <laughs> but not this guy. But um, what, what am I saying? Oh, so um, this the idea that that we are machines is is actually relevant to the dehumanization of of the science of human action. And that was specifically what um, Frederick Hayek in 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 one of his most important books called The Counterrevolution in Science he was talking about the the this new deadlyism which i haven't haven't done a show on yet called scientism and it came out of of the french enlightenment in the 171800s because so many advances had happened in the so-called natural sciences that that the philosophers of the time the positivists there's, um, there's this guy that Hayek writes uh, pretty brutally about called Henri de Saint-Simon, who was the founding father of socialism. But he also imagined that you could turn politics and economics and any of the so-called humane sciences into a positive objective science. Um, and the the problem with that is that humans are not robots. Humans make choices. Um, humans have dreams and aspirations and um, they can't easily be modeled the same way that particles in a um, um, physics experiment could be or in the way that you would have inputs going into a calculus equation. And this, this, this is uh, completely relevant to the to what the Austrian, what's different about Austrian economics because Ludwig von Mises wrote a book called Human Action and Hayek was his, his greatest um, student, perhaps. Um, some people might dispute that, but I, I think that's true. And the whole point of it was you can't model people's behavior based on, on an equation. Um, but that's precisely what the socialists were trying to do, going all the way back to Henry de Saint-Simon, and it was inputs and outputs and just thinking that um, it was both doable and moral to manipulate people the way that you would manipulate a science experiment. Um, so that like I, I just uh, more recently I wrote the first academic paper I've written in probably 30 years about um, um, Fauchism and Scientism. Um, because the arrogance of, of the modelers of COVID, the arrogance of the lockdowners in COVID, um, I think they very much view us as, as sort of farm animals to be manipulated and experimented with. And, you know, to me, a vac- vaccine for, passport makes perfect sense if you're raising cattle. It's, it's morally repugnant if you're talking about the lives and the livelihoods of free people, um, but I don't. I honestly don't think, and I don't think this is hyperbole. I don't think Fauci really sees a, a fundamental distinction there.
0: Yeah, I think you're you're probably right about that. And um, I I had your video. I think I mentioned mentioned it earlier about like um, what dictators don't know. Um, that that video was very influential on me in in the concept that there's all of this the amount of detail that, that a central planner thinks they know to be able to com- control an, an entire economy. It's just like, it, it's crazy because um, they don't know the personal relationships between, you know, businessmen and, and their employees. And there, there were plenty of tweets after OSHA, the, the OSHA mandate was um, struck down by the Supreme court where people were saying like, if, if the, if the government doesn't have the authority to do, to do this, they don't have the authority to do anything, but it, it really just goes back to the principle of like localism, in my opinion, who like, who's closer to the problem. And I think that your video kind of explaining, um, the calculation problem really highlights that problem. And, and Fauci and the pandemic has been the biggest, I guess, Example that pe- that people can focus on because I don't think there's ever been really a time in history where this many people are focusing
1: on an issue like this. Yeah, like um, and you know Hayek's uh, fundamental critique of central planning, and and he would call that socialism because the the original definition of socialism—it's all confused today—but originally socialism meant replacing free choice and the market process, and prices, and ownership, and um, exchange with a central one-size-fits-all top-down plan. They were just going to eliminate that stuff. And there's been um, two or three, I think, pretty important examples of, of actual Marxist socialists trying to implement such a plan. And the first was under war communism, un, under, under Lenin, the second was um, the Great Leap Forward under Mao, and the third one was um, Pol Pot, in and in, in what is that? The, the the late 1960s, I think. And those those three examples happen to be um, moments in history where they killed so many people. Pol Pot killed. Um, I forget what the percentage is now. Some massive percent of his population, like thirty or forty percent of Cambodians, died because the the idea was to, to to take whatever it is that the market was doing and replace it with your vision for how society should be. And in Pol Pot's case, he also like um, learned his economics in Paris. He thought that 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 Cambodia should go back to this idyllic. Um, uh, farming society. And he herded people out of the cities and he killed a lot of the elites, the intellectuals he killed before they went out into fields to produce but but without without any thinking about what would happen if he did so he he insisted that people that lived in the city suddenly become farmers. And of course, they had no knowledge of how to do that. So people starved to death um, in mass. And what's what's interesting about that experiment is that that Pol Pot was very much influenced by by Mao and Mao's great leap forward was was almost the opposite social experiment. Mao was embarrassed that 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 China at the time was primarily an agricultural economy and he wanted it to be an industrial economy that could compete with the United States. So he passed a rule that said farmers shall produce steel. And. That had a similar effect in that it didn't produce any steel at all, but it pulled all of the farmers out of their fields and created a massive famine, unlike anything we have ever seen before. So these these are sort of now obviously stupid ideas, but that that arrogance that you would know how to replace all of that, that local decentralized knowledge that exists in every one of us in, in a way that's that's hard to capture, unless you let the the market process happen, um, that that's high experimental critique um, that dictators don't know enough, and and I very much apply that to what um, lockdowners like Fauci have done in this case. I mean, Fauci clearly doesn't know anything about simple economics, and he really doesn't care about that because he's focused on one thing, and 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 probably even fatally conceited about that. He thinks that he can stop a virus even though there's very little evidence in the history of mankind that such a thing is possible um, but he now thinks he has the knowledge to do that.
0: yeah, it's like they're they're controlling for one variable too like throughout this entire pandemic they've been talking about you know case numbers and and when you control for that one variable and, and you try to you know predict human behavior behavior and, and map it out, and the only thing you carry care about is how many people have this virus, then you start to see cancer deaths go up. You start to see mental health crises throughout the entire country. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing right now is that, you know, people were only caring about one variable and forgetting about all of the other
1: things that matter in life. Yeah, that goes back to Frederick Bastiati. Has this famous um, essay called "The Seen and the Unseen," and and speaking specifically of, of political mandates, they they see a problem, uh, they pass a rule that they claim is is going to solve that problem, but they don't see all of the unintended consequences that naturally come from that, and and that's that's been that's been it it goes back um, in a smaller way to the knowledge problem. They they don't know enough to do the things that they say they they wanted to do. And you compound that with the other problem, which is whenever you centralize power in a way that would be required to reorganize things from the top down, um, you, you create monsters. And anyone with that much power uh, naturally will abuse it. And I think we're now seeing um, you know, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist that believes that from day one, they did this to us so that they could uh, subjugate us and control us and turn us into farm animals. I think I think um, political arrogance turned into political stu- stupidity, turned into expediency. And now the, the power hungry um, monsters are starting to emerge and saying, you know what? Let's create a let's create a social credit system, just like in China, because we really need to control people. And And I don't know if you saw it, but I believe it was yesterday. The Salt Lake City Tribune editorial board actually wrote an editorial saying that the state of Utah should use their National Guard to police and and lock down anybody who has chosen not to be vaccinated. Wow. It's just like it's like drip, drip, drip. And suddenly. You're seeing these these full on fascist proposals and nobody nobody's like freaking out, like how on earth does any editorial board of any paper in the United States suggest such a thing without immediately getting denounced by by anybody with a with a shred of decency? It's just it's weird. But we're now like two years into this thing and people aren't acting rationally anymore. They're afraid they're they and and they they're very hateful of anybody else who they they think is now the enemy right
0: something i was surprised to see was kind of the narrative that came out where um people were willing to to give up liberties just because they wanted to be free and they wanted to go out in public again so it, it's kind of like this narrative has has evolved into well why don't we just get everyone vaccinated or shut down the unvaccinated so that we can live our lives so it's become like not only did they give an incentive for them to get vaccinated and then so that so that they could go outside but now they're they're convincing people that we should be able to use force so that they can live their lives and, and I think it's they're they're separating people into camps through that way um in in a, in a sense they're they're the people who are already vaccinated you know they're giving them more reasons to want to use force against the unvaccinated Um, and, and on your point about like the calculation problem earlier, a lot of people look to like the, the toilet paper crisis at the beginning of the lockdowns where there were shortages everywhere. And, and part of this problem was that, you know, they, they put price controls, they, they don't allow price gouging. Um, so there really is no way for these, these people to have like price signals to see how much demand there is for toilet paper. And I don't know if you saw this, but, um, there was an article that was suggesting that we need to put um, price controls on businesses who consider raising prices because of inflation. So what what we're going to get is like this, you know, almost like a two punch catastrophe where, you know, we have inflation, but then they're going to put price controls and we're going to get shortages because they won't allow price fluctuations. And that's something that I'm pretty terrified about.
1: Well, it's funny. They won't. They want to allow price fluctuations, but they also won't take responsibility. They, being the government, yeah. or just printing out of nothing, uh, six or eight trillion over the last two years, depending on how you count it, and and you know the the problem with spending money you don't have is that there's only so much you can tax before people avoid those taxes or or reject you at the polls. Um, and what you can't tax, you borrow. But at some point, there's only so much you can borrow, and so much of the the debt that the U.S. government holds is is financed by China. Um, But the easiest way and the most pernicious way is to simply print money and create credit, which is what the Federal Reserve has done. Um, Certainly certainly been been going to town long before COVID, but but at some point, you're going to see exactly the sort of uh, price inflation that we're seeing right now and it and it's doubled uh it's doubly bad because of everything that the government has done to disrupt the supply chain so you have a supply problem and you also have a, a demand problem in that people have lots of fake money chasing fewer and fewer goods and and people don't people don't save when when they're destroying the currency because it doesn't make sense so it's, it's a perfect storm. And then you have the Elizabeth Warrens of the world. Um, and she's certainly not the only one, I suspect this will be a bipartisan problem, as things get worse, using political mandates to demand that that we freeze prices on on essential goods, which, of course, sends a signal back to producers that they should make less, not more. Um, so this this sort of basic economic logic is this gets back to the the challenge of trying to explain these stories in a way that people can comprehend, one, who's to blame for inflation, and two, what you would actually need to do to get out of the mess. And it seems counterintuitive, but the only way to get out of the mess is to stop doing all this stupid stuff that that the government's doing. And that's that's hard for a politician to say. They have to say two things, right? I screwed up, I voted for all this new spending, um, it's creating all of these incredible disruptions. That's that's actually a wealth transfer from working people to, to the elites. And not only did I screw up, but now I have to tell you that I can't really fix the problem. I need to just get out of the way so that you can fix the problem. Um, I don't know very many politicians that will be that honest with people. So they just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And, and Mises talks about this. He's like, um, you know, when you get to the the boom and bust of the business cycle created by by inflation and and distorting price signals and 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 creating all this malinvestment, um, it can be fixed. But politicians have to be honest enough to get out of the way. But instead, they double down. And I think that's what we're going to see right now. They're going to keep doubling down on bad policies and it's going to create insane and and frankly, some unpredictable results that, that even, even we won't be able to predict.
0: Yeah. I think Jerome Powell has already kind of admitted that they got it wrong, but they're not, he's not going to admit the second part. He's, he is going to double down and he's up for renomination anyway. So I think that it's, I think you're right about that. And I don't know if that implies that they're going to just continue to print or if they really are going to raise interest rates, but I, I don't see things going well. Like Ron Paul always said, like, When he would um, question the chair of the Federal Reserve, he would say, no, you just need to admit that you can't do your job like it's your job is impossible.
1: You can't control the economy. Yeah. Yeah. And there was um, I mean, a a lot of uh, Fed watchers advocate more simple rules that don't involve really bizarre things like I believe part of the Fed mandate today is full employment Um, as if any, as if monetary policy could create full employment, um, their, their mandate to the extent that they exist should be simple to not corrupt the, the value of money, um, which would, you know, Ron Paul wants to end the Fed, but there's this cool old video um, of Frederick Hayek uh, pretty late in his life, where he's talking about the denationalization of money. And he's, he's predicting uh, cryptocurrency. He has no idea that such a thing is coming, but he's like, it's going to be impossible to dismantle the government banking system. Um, so we're going to have to figure out a workaround. And, and to me, um, as, as much as I would love to end the Fed and I, I'd love to chant it as much as anybody else. I, I think it's impossible to imagine that the regime, um, and this, this massive, uh, uh, ecosystem of interest that sort of feed off of, of of manipulating the money supply would ever allow that to happen, which is why they're so freaked out about Bitcoin. Like, when Hillary Clinton says that Bitcoin is evil, you know that it's it's you should like put all of your eggs in that basket, not financially, but just in terms of of social transformation. I, I think I, I think blockchain based decentralization is, is one of the things that makes me hopeful. And it, what's what's interesting is that Hayek predicted it, even though he couldn't have imagined how exactly it was going to happen.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. And uh, about Hillary Clinton, it's crazy that they're they're thinking about running her again. <laughs> um, it's I mean, I, I heard somewhere I forget who said it, but it was like we should just elect her because if the empire is going to fall like it should be her face on you know that kind of like makes like everyone thinks of hillary clinton when they think of the empire falling
1: well you know it's like it it um it's sort it's it's it would be the same choice that they made with joe biden and it's 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 the and we could get into politics here for a second the the difference between what actual uh democratic voters and independent voters wanted um, if if they had had their way, they they would have gotten Bernie Sanders, um, who I certainly don't agree with on economics, but in terms of uh, his political posture within the Democratic Party, he was an outsider. He couldn't be trusted. He he essentially would have been the same thing to the Democratic Party that Donald Trump was to the Republican Party—an outsider that they couldn't control. So they they chose the the least viable candidate and circled the wagons around Joe Biden because. You know their thinking was he's one of us and we can control him and and so they you know if, if they could get hillary clinton across the finish line she would be one of them and she would she would maintain all of the things that that big government feeds off of um, in, in inflation and expanding the money supply uh, spending trillions of dollars we don't have uh, the the drug war the war on terror just just go down the list of all these things that have created these these huge ecosystems of big government that that is both inside and outside government formally um, and bernie was challenging a lot of that right he he was against mass incarceration he, and he was against the war on drugs and he was against the never ending war on terror um and and he was against crony capitalism and those are those are the the worst things that the establishment wants to hear. And in that way, you know, he's, he sounded a lot like Ron Paul, right? At a superficial level, Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders could have given the same speech, and they were both treated the same way by the the party elites with, within that machine, and and probably exactly for the same reason. So, the, you know, the question is, um, what's What's going to happen with the with the two party cartel? And because in in a lot of ways, Trump broke the the Republican cartel. He was not one of them. Um, And Bernie would have if they hadn't cheated him out of it. Um, So you have all of this all of this breakup of the two party cartel. And I, I think it's it's hopeful and interesting, but it's it's like it's it would be the last piece. Of 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 the top down structure to fall because it's already happened in media. Um, I forget how much bigger Joe Rogan is from CNN, but it's comically astronomical, and and that's awesome. And and that that's one of the things that gives me hope.
0: Yeah, and the RNC just announced that they they might start requiring all of their candidates to not participate in the debates. So I mean, if there's an alternative that pops up, which I think would be amazing, like if if there was a long form podcast that invited all of these candidates on and actually, you know, required them to spell out their ideas and, and sit down for like two hours. I think that that would be so much more valuable than having them stand up and like, you know, talk about sound bites. And cause a lot of these guys, they just, they, they get prepared behind the scenes and they think of these things ahead of time. And, there, it's nothing of value, but if if you actually had to sit them down and and pressure them and and make them like come up with a coherent argument for their policies, I think that we would weed out a lot of these people.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it, um, yeah, the, the the current structure of the debates, beyond the fact that they don't they they don't allow anyone other than Republicans or Democrats to participate, um, you know, even you know Tulsi Gabbard is another great story of of someone who used to be like she was like. Vice Chairman of the DCCC, I believe, at some point, and and then she started taking on um, the the war culture within her own party, and they just they just rigged it so that she couldn't participate in in her own debates. Um, so that those those debates are are meaningless and and not interesting. I I would imagine the and this has always been a challenge for for outsider candidates. Um, you had to get on the presidential stage in order to get people's attention. That's becoming less and less true. And Trump sort of proved that point. You know he had celebrity. Um, but you know what if what if someone an outsider um, just had the courage to and and the ability to go on Joe Rogan and just explain what they were thinking? and you you could imagine a whole different type of of candidate emerging from that process. Which is why they're so afraid of him. Like They're afraid that that platform um, makes media elites irrelevant in in choosing which ideas and which candidates matter. Um, so I, I think it it continues to be a matter of time, no matter what they try to do to Joe Rogan, no matter what they do to Deep Platform, uh, any or all of us. It's it's hard to keep it down. They're playing a game of whack-a-mole, and I think I think we're entering an era where um, knowledge itself is is democratized in a good way. I'm I'm more optimistic than pessimistic about censorship because I think um the way they're behaving just shows how desperate they are.
0: Yeah, I think there's really like a Joe Rogan effect going on where like every single time they they censor a podcast of his more people go to it and I'm I'm very optimistic about that. Um but I did want to switch it up a little bit. Um one of the first videos that I came across of yours that was pretty Influential was the right to try video, um, and I think that going back to what I mentioned earlier, a lot of people were focusing. You know, the pandemic was a unique moment for the American people, where they were all focusing on this huge political event and um, really exposed the corruption in the FDA. Um, and you and and your personal experiences kind of helped you come to that before the pandemic and um just you know with how long it took for drugs to get uh, approved and the amount of people who um die because they wait 12 years or whatever um so do you want to just talk a little bit about that that corruption in the FDA and um
1: yeah yeah, yeah. And, and 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 for people that don't know and I and my wife finally convinced me to tell the story about 18 years ago I survived stage 4 cancer and one of and I, I went through a pretty, pretty rough regimen of, of chemotherapy to do that. Um, spoiler alert, I, I lived. So if if people are on the edge of their seats, I'll just get that off the table. But, uh, you know, one of the one of the chemotherapy treatments that I had was a relatively newly approved drug that came from the FDA and me being the geek that I was at the time I started researching um, all of this stuff. And, and either you can actually find a, a letter to the editor that I wrote to the wall street journal. And this would, this would have been, um, like 2001, something like that. And I actually, while I was doing a chemo drip, I, I, I ripped off this letter to the editor about, um, FDA sitting on these, these, um, uh, let's call them experimental drugs. I mean, that's, that's probably treating them unfairly. Um, but what has happened over time is that the FDA um, process of getting a new drug approved has gotten longer and longer and and more expensive along the way. And um from, from an FDA's point of view, they're they're being politically risk averse because they made some fairly famous mistakes in the past, specifically with thalidomide. I think a lot of people know that story. And the the thing about being a bureaucrat is you're not going to get blamed for not approving something, but if you approve something and something goes wrong, um, you might you might lose your job, and and that's that's true that's generally true of all regulatory agencies. So they they famously slow walk things, particularly if it involves taking taking any sort of risk, even if people are dying along that process. But the other half, which is is probably far more pernicious is that big drug companies love the fact that it takes 20 years to get a new drug approved by the FDA because they're big and um, that barrier to entry, that regulatory cost of getting a new drug to market makes it very difficult for smaller competitors. um, You know, know, let's say uh, biotech startup firms um, people that that might have a better idea. So so one of the one of the horrible things that happens because of the FDA approval time is a lot of these really innovative drugs are bought up by the big guys and then killed because they would compete with an existing uh, protocol that that company already has Fda approval for. or they just scoop it up and 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 enjoy all the profits there. so um what what right to try is, and and Donald Trump did did some things on this, probably not nearly enough. But what right to try basically says is if if you are a patient with with a likely death sentence, so let's say you're a cancer patient, let's say let's 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 personalize and let's say that it was me with stage four cancer, and the drug that one of the drugs that saved my life wasn't available. I would have had the right to try that drug. Um, because um, the cost benefit for me would be quite different. Like, it's not approved yet, but I, I think I think it's worth taking that risk. Um, there was a hilarious or tragic debate on the Senate floor when when Trump's right to try legislation was going through, because uh, Democrats who voted against it, I believe 100% of the Democrats in the Senate voted against it on a very partisan basis, they would actually stand in the well saying, uh, we can't let people who are going to die make this choice because they might die if they make the wrong choice. And that's the logic of of not allowing people to choose their lives. Um, But, you know, I I think there's a lot of confusion about that in the context of the vaccines today, because there's, um, and, you know, I think uh, think some conservatives specifically, you know, people that would be skeptical of the vaccines uh, make this argument, but, the FDA rushed approval and they did and it was politicized and and there was was a political mandate that they needed a solution to this problem and it needed to be a vaccine because the other treatments for reasons I don't fully understand were not acceptable. Um, I don't really care so much if the FDA rushed the approval. What I ultimately care about is whether or not we get to choose Um, because different people have different circumstances, different people face different risks. If I am a a terminal cancer patient and I'm willing to assume a risk that other people aren't willing to assume, I think that makes perfect sense. And it would be immoral to prevent me from doing that. I would say the same thing about vaccines. They they should be available, um, but the idea that we would force them on people is just as immoral, if not more so, and preventing me from from trying a life saving drug. And I think that's it all gets down to freedom and choice. And, and as as uh, as as doctors ethics would say, informed consent um, and FDA approval, don't don't make any mistake about it. It is a politicized process and FDA approval may or may not mean that that drug does what it's going to do or is as safe as they say it is. Um, and the fact that 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 governments, um, our government is now coercing people, particularly young people into taking it, I think is I think is obscene.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, I was gonna bring that up, that like I I don't think the argument that a lot of people make that, you know, these vaccines were rushed are are good ones, is is that they are trying to force it on people and also just the way that, you know the interests of, or the corporate interests, um, are merged with FDA interests, like in the fact that there were only a few companies that really came out on top that, uh, they supported in warp speed and how other countries can't use the same vaccines and can't make the same vaccines and distribute them, them themselves. Um, all goes to show that it's just one corporate scheme, I think. Um, and, they're using the government to force it on people. And I think that's the worst part, not that they're uh, speeding up the process.
1: Yeah. One, one thing I learned, uh, I don't know if you watched the Joe Rogan interview with uh, Dr. Malone. Yeah. Um, I probably wouldn't have if they hadn't banned it. And I'm like, okay, now I have to. Um, But one of the things that I learned from that interview, which I knew, but I didn't realize to the extent which the distinction between government financed uh, research and pharmaceutical development are intertwined is it's probably almost indistinguishable at some point um, where uh, government ownership involvement initiation started and where um, so-called private pharmaceutical company benefit ends. So I I think it's, um, you know, the technical word for that is fascism, right? Government Control of the means of production, but uh, maybe it's even more than that. It, it looks like the government may own some of the, the means of, of vaccine production. Um, so this, this is there, there's no like free market argument for or against this kind of stuff. And and people that um, you know, some libertarians make this argument. A lot of libertarians now make this argument about, about tech censorship um, or in defense of. Big pharmaceutical companies. That, well, it's a private company; it can do whatever it wants. Um, it's not really. Um, these these things are incredibly screwed up now, and I, I would be more and more skeptical of uh, the same pharmaceutical companies that that saved my life 18 years ago when it comes to the vaccine, because there is something really fishy about the fact that. Um, these vaccines that, that are available to us in the United States continue to be um, only approved for emergency use by the FDA. And part of emergency use, um, in order to get that designation, there cannot be alternative um, treatments available. And so you have, you have the government push, push, push on vaccines and they're pushing on boosters. Um, at the same time, uh, demonizing um, alternatives—I um, won't even name them—so we don't we don't get you banned. But, but you know, one—I think one thing that we can talk about is monoclonal antibodies. Um, there's everyone seems to agree, unlike those other things, that monoclonal antibodies are a very, very substantial uh, life-saving treatment, particularly if if you receive them early on in, in your, your bout with COVID, and something really weird happened. I, I can't quite pinpoint when it happened. I remember when it became a public thing, um, when, when Ron DeSantis in Florida was, was being very successful with monoclonal antibodies, uh, the Biden administration basically took that away from it. And with the emergence of Omicron, um, the Biden administration, which now effectively has nationalized the supply and the distribution of monoclonal antibodies, they took two of the three available um, monoclonal antibody treatments off, I shouldn't say the market, because it's not a market, it's it's pure command and control politics, um, only to discover that Omicron, was the, the argument was those two don't work on Omicron, as if they could possibly know Uh, two weeks into the Omicron variant. Um, But more importantly, they would then discover that Omicron wasn't nearly as dominant as they thought it was, and that Delta was still out there. So the fact that the Biden administration um, basically took away this treatment means that they have blood on their hands, right? Somewhere at the margin, perhaps lots of people died because they couldn't receive this treatment, many of whom had already been vaccinated. So to me, it's uh, it's a lesson that nobody's gonna learn about the the evils of socialized medicine. Uh, going back to our themes, they don't know enough and they can't be trusted with that much power.
0: Yeah, and it especially goes back to like the separation of of the prices. And, and just when you do nationalize this, like you said, it is a command and control economy. So there's no way for them to know how much needs to be made. Um, and that's why People just can't get monoclonal antibodies right now, Um, and because it seems that they're actually trying to limit how much can be distributed. But I'm not too sure. I have I haven't really I haven't been able to find much information about what happened, other than um, the fact that they did nationalize the distribution. But seems a little fishy.
1: Yeah, and we uh, this was this was personal for us because um, my wife Terry got um, COVID. Some version of COVID over Christmas, and we set out to get monoclonal antibodies, only to discover that they, for all intents and purposes, are not available to anybody because the Biden administration is is holding them back. Um, and Terry's fine now, but the whole the whole point of that treatment, as I understand it, is you use it early before things get bad, and I think once. Once you end up with, with lung issues, that's where people have real problems with, with COVID. And I don't, it, there's, there's a weird thing going on and I, I think we're gonna learn that it's been going on much longer than, than we thought it did, where um, the federal government has the ability to just unilaterally nationalize medical treatments. And it's certainly true of the vaccine. They, they bought it, they own it. Um, and now they're mandating that you take it. Um, that is a radical shift away from the way that we have um, distributed medicine. You know, we don't we don't have a free market, but we have this this three tiered system where um, you know private insurers and patients make decisions about healthcare. But now now the government's not not in the middle; they're they're on the top, and they've done that with monoclonals. and And I assume that. Um, wherever they're, they're getting this power from it's, it's, it's a very dangerous precedent that I don't know how we get the genie back in the bottle on that one.
0: We've hit three o'clock. Um, how much more time do you have? I have a few more questions just from the audience, but if, if you have to go right now, we can cut it off. I'm good. Let's go. Yeah. So, um, the next question I have is, uh, kind of relevant to Montana because there's, there's a discussion about school choice. And um, there are a bunch of letters being written to the superintendent of public instruction, uh, just letters of no confidence, um, because she's promoting school choice here. Uh, the school board's also disaffiliated with the national um, or the, the union disassociated with the national union. Um, and a lot of parents have been out protesting school boards and everything like that. Um, and and you came out with a new documentary, I think about a week ago called sick year. Uh, can you just promote that and uh tell us a little bit about what it's about?
1: Yeah, and this is uh, um i'm I'm almost sad that the timing for a new documentary is so good because we made it in in twenty twenty one and it is a story of uh, we went and and found a bunch of moms that had gotten so fed up with the government slash public school system because of all the things, because of virtual learning, because of masking, but with because of the potential of, of forced vaccination. They all had their own concerns about the dehumanizing nature of it. And they decided to take matters into their own hands and, and developed various very innovative ways of, of homeschooling, and unschooling, and pod-schooling, and, and one of the upsides of the, the arrogance of teachers unions and the way they have refused to teach kids in any humane way during lockdowns is more and more parents are learning about how the school system actually works. They're learning that the, the it's not a public system at all, it's a government system where you essentially work for them, your child uh, obeys their needs and their orders and not vice versa. Um, and it's sort of breaking down that, that obvious fear that you might have as a parent, like, can, can I do this on my own? Well, you don't have to do it on your own. And, and the point of our documentary is, is hopefully a little bit empowering to other moms that are so frustrated, um, you know, find, find, find a pod of parents that want to do something different um we didn't we didn't find a pod specifically like this but i, I know of pods of parents that that actually uh, pooled resources enough to hire a teacher that was fed up with the government school system and you can't imagine how much better the education is how much the environment is better how much uh personalized education where each child gets to to sort of learn and pursue their interests in a way that that's not centralized, top-down, one size fits all. Um, I'm a victim of, of government schools and I, I didn't fit very well. And I I have other friends that that felt that way. So it's to me it's the upside of this of this disaster. I think there's a revolution going on in schooling. And I think that um, the teachers unions and 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 the politicians that support them are already paying a political price for their arrogance. Um, I mean, you definitely saw it in Virginia. I think you're gonna see it in other places. But you know, forget politics. The beauty of this documentary, Sick Year, is it tells a story where you don't have to get anybody's permission to take back your child's education. You can do it, you can, you can partner with other parents that feel the same way and just move forward and, and, and be free and, and watch your kids prosper.
0: Yeah, I, I really struggled like early in high school too. Just, I mean, I, I started to become somewhat of a rebel and, you know, the common core testing, I I would always protest it. And I I too was probably a victim of, of public schools. And it's just, I, I think that the whole idea that we have this standardized schooling that everyone fits into, you know, um, we all have to study math, we all have to study this. There's these, even, you know, even in college, I'm at the university here, there are some prerequisites that you have to go through and it's it's all just a scheme, I think, to pay their friends, you know, and and require students to take the same classes. Um, but I, I think if, if we had this different model that allowed stu- kids to just like find what they're interested in and pursue them, I think that it would be revolutionary.
1: Yeah, it's, it's absurd that that you would kind of go. Let's go back to the machine metaphor. Um, and I, and we were making this documentary, I kept thinking of of the the movie, um the Wall, which is based on the Pink Floyd album. And there's this really dystopian um, you know, you know the song, we don't need no education, whatever that song's called. And it's just it's it's kids in school, um, you know, marching sort of um, Nazi-like, um, right into a meat grinder. And I think, I think the metaphor here is like, you know, we're, we're treating our kids like farm animals instead of, instead of all that beautiful potential that's there. And, and I understand that um, I, and it, this, by the way, is a, is a fundamentally libertarian problem. It's hard to explain to people that are used to, you know, you went to public school and your parents went to public school and you're going to send your, your kids to the same system. Um the challenge is trying to explain to people what the potential is that would come from free choice. And and the, the the thing we did in this documentary was 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 and and none of it's scripted at all. We just asked them to tell their stories. And it's amazing um how much more they know about education policy than than the rest of us do because they lived it and they had to do something about it. And and that to me is very powerful and hopefully empowering to other parents that that absolutely need to do something different.
0: So I have a couple more questions left. It's um, someone asked how you measure success in the Liberty Movement and kind of what you think about the future of the Liberty
1: Movement and where it's going. So um, it's a very good question. It's very difficult to measure social movements as anybody knows. and if you're if you're spending too much time uh, measuring things in a very quantifiable way, you're probably fooling yourself into um, creating metrics that, that may not be as meaningful as you hope they are. Um, the um, The entire strategy of Free the People was to get upstream of politics and to get into the popular culture and 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 create that that conversation and that 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 common narrative that explained why it was that that liberty um was a better way to live your life than subservient um there's a there's a market disconnect there right like in, and we haven't really talked about about media censorship and the, the the social media industrial complex and um the what was it uh direct tv just uh deplatformed oan do you know what oan is i've I know what it is, but I've never watched it. But it's it's kind of a, a Fox News want-to-be channel. And they're they're just they're just pushing everything that's not the same out of culture to the extent that they can. But that that creates the potential for a counter-revolution. And and we want to be part of that. Um, I I I think to the extent that, that people can, they should really focus on the cultural narrative and not just um, politics but practically speaking we measure our stuff um and you the nice thing about about social media is you can you can measure everything and and one of the proud things i would say about our documentaries and and my show Kibbe on Liberty and other stuff that we produce is our our we we get lots of views but our watch time is substantial i think i think on youtube it's close to 10 minutes which is is at very much at the higher end of of that kind of stuff so you you have an ability to the extent that you're not being censored to to measure whether or not your stories are compelling. You can look at the audience that you're reaching. We don't, we don't spend a lot on social media because we like um, the nice thing about organic views is that they actually give you a sense for whether or not your stuff is working. But, but ultimately, I think we should all be working towards a, a sort of a, a, a freer marketplace for ideas where, where we can, we can tell compelling stories that aren't, that aren't like so on the nose that they only appeal to the libertarian faithful. Um, but I, um, I'll quote Mao here in a sympathetic way, um, uh, something to the effect of let a thousand flowers bloom. And I know libertarians argue about this, right? Like, should we do the Free State Project? Should we do the LP? Should we do the kind of cultural outreach that Free the People's doing? Should we do politics? Should we, which, what should we do? And, and I suggest you do the thing that you're good at, um, and try to figure out, um, if we can create a cooperative division of labor. Like, I don't think these things are competing with each other. And I wish libertarians wouldn't spend so much time fighting with each other, um, because we, we could use each other's help, but, you know, do what you're good at. But we really need storytellers and artists and, and actors and, and, and creative types that can get into the culture. And and one of the reasons I think that the liberty movement is growing is when I when I talk to, to, to organizations, particularly young people, um, the diversity of talent there is very much so different than when I was their age, because when I was their age, we had all read human action. And that was our one talent. And arguably maybe that's not even a talent. Um, it's not like that anymore. And that that tells me that that we're diverse and growing, and, and that's a cool thing.
0: Yeah. Another question that someone asked was um, since you kind of were targeting more like uh, younger audiences, what strategies and I guess what has worked, what have you found appealed to them the most?
1: Beer. It's all about beer. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm only half joking. Like I think, and, and I, I started to go down the, uh, the narrative about pets, but, but I think that the, the way that culture works is you want to not just tell personal stories and, and and find people that other people can relate to, but talk about things that, that people actually care about. Um, supply chain's pretty difficult, but if there's no beer on the shelves and you're wondering why, um, that that might be a really um, interesting gateway drug to teach people about basic economics and and that's actually that's actually why we started doing all the videos about beer. Um, I think it was 2016 um, when Venezuela really started to fall apart. There was an article about how the, the one sort of nationalized brewery in Venezuela couldn't get the ingredients to make beer. And Venezuela was the highest uh, beer consuming country in all of Latin America. And they're going through socialist hell and they couldn't even get a get a cold beer anymore. And that, and that to me was tragic and funny. And, and an interesting way to explain to people all of the economic mistakes that led to the, the reality that that the producer of beer couldn't get the ingredients to put beer on the shelves. Um, the other one and, you know, Venezuela has all sorts of tragic stories, but I love to talk a lot about um, I'm a cat person, obviously, if you've been watching this this show. And um, I love to joke that cats are libertarians and dogs are communists. Some people disagree with me on that, but um, beyond the joke, you could just point out that um, the cats and dogs and other pets that Americans love so much are very much a luxury good that wouldn't be possible without a lot of prosperity that's that's created by free market capitalism. Um, And poor countries don't have pets, they eat pets. And there was another tragic story about Venezuela um, that had been in the last generation, one of the most prosperous countries in Latin America. Um, so, so, and there's data on this, pet ownership had spiked. Every family had a dog and it got so bad at the, at the height of, of, of their their starvation that, that they were they were forced to eat the family pet. And I think a lot of Americans can't even conceive of what that world would be like um, but it personalizes it in a way that that um, we're like, oh, now I get it um, because everybody I know loves their pet. Uh, it's part of their family. And and we should appreciate where that that sort of uh, um, love and happiness comes from. Right.
0: Yeah. And I, I have another question about love, actually, and it's it's about your your documentary on um, uh Restorative justice. Um, and and I'm glad someone asked this because something that I always think about is uh um, the video of Botham Jean, his his brother in court forgave Amber Geiger. I don't know if you've seen this video, but it's one of the most moving videos I've ever seen because um she was the police officer who came home and uh um oh yeah, yeah, okay. killed Botham and entered the wrong apartment. And the brother just in court forgives her and gives her a hug. And, and I've always tried to say that, like, I, I think that reform really comes through the heart and, and the way that criminal justice, the criminal justice system works in this country is, I don't really understand the purpose and the goal of it. I, I don't really know what we're aiming for if we're just locking people up. Um, so someone asked if you could just um, give a little pitch
1: for that documentary. Yeah, like um, even even before I started Free the People, um, we had worked a lot on um, uh, criminal justice reform and and mass incarceration and certainly ending the drug wars is is a key piece of that puzzle um, because we do have an insane over-incarceration problem in the United States. And the, the problem with getting into the justice system is it's very difficult to get out again. And We have these super high recidivism rates, where you go in—you um, know, maybe it's for a drug crime, um, maybe you did something stupid and you're young—but once you're in the system, it's it's difficult to get a job when you get out of the system. So you end up committing more crimes and and being in the prison system. You're—it's basically a training ground for for hardened criminals. Um, so we've tried from from the top down to fix a lot of these problems and unfortunately like everything else we've been talking about tonight there's there's an ecosystem of interest public and private that like mass incarceration and it's not just the private prisons it's the it's the police unions and and the uh, politicians that have to be tough on crime we know how we got here um so there's this concept called restorative justice that is is radical in the sense that it allows for uh, the victim of a crime in cooperation with law enforcement and the person that committed the crime to opt out of the traditional justice system and and go into a restorative process, which, which might look a lot like arbitration. Um, they would never use that word, but it's, it's where the, the community and the victim engage the person that, that did the harm and, and they try to work through um, the uh, taking responsibility for their actions, and then and if they're willing to do that, ways that, that they might try to make the victim whole. And it's not really about money because um, most of these uh, people that have committed these harms don't, don't have the money in the first place. And, and uh, the documentary we did, How to Love Your Enemy, is about a community in Longmont, Colorado, that has implemented this program, and I think I think they're about twenty years into it right now. And um, there's two interesting things about it: it works insanely well; it's transformational. Um, I think their recidivism rate is for 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 young uh, offenders that go through this process is is approaching zero, which is the opposite of the justice system. Um, which is approaching what, I don't know what it is, 70, 80%, something insane like that. But the other thing is they didn't have to get permission from the president. They didn't have to wait for Congress to pass legislation. They didn't have to get permission from the governor or the state legislature. This was a bottom-up community-based decision that they made um, with law enforcement to fix their own system. And I, I love that that bottom-up approach to things. And it, it, it might be a way for all of us in our communities to push against mass incarceration without hoping that the right guy gets elected. Because that, as we know, can be a very frustrating process. So so yeah, check that one out. We're very proud of that. It's won a ton of awards. It's actually become, and if anybody wants to do this, talk to me. It's become kind of an activist toolkit where where people organize viewings. um, And they invite law enforcement, other interested parties, uh, we even had uh, BLM, Black Lives Matter come to one event in Colorado is it It's kind of interesting seeing all these uh, police cars drive into a uh, a movie theater where we were showing it and and not be anxious that the that the cops were showing up. but uh, it's it's a cool thing and 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 really sort of inspirational and another another great example of what people can do if they're willing to take the the liberty and the responsibility to do it for themselves.
0: Yeah, and I'll, I'll reach out to you about that because I'm, a, I'm organizing a student group on campus here, and I think it would be great to do something like that, show the film for students here. Um, but the last question I have is, uh, through your podcast, Kibby on Liberty, um, have there been any guests
1: that you were just really excited to land? Hmm. Um, a lot of them, actually. And uh, I, did, I did a cool one with uh, Penn Gillette and Glenn Beck together. Um, the great thing about having Pendulette on your podcast is you don't have to say that much. You just have to say hi. and it, <laughs> he he goes. Um, one of one of the most popular ones we ever did was a conversation between Tulsi Gabbard and thomas Massey. um thomas is a is a a friend and and a he's pretty regular on our show. um and he was friends with Tulsi, so we organized this thing. You know, the aspiration, for my podcast um which ha- it hasn't turned out exactly the way i wanted but i really wanted it to be kind of transpartisan i wanted it uh, where i would invite people that that i didn't agree with to just have an honest conversation about about things and and really focus on things we did agree on um we actually had the the stars of of our documentary about restorative justice they were on and that one was fantastic um but you know it's the the goal is uh, is to find people outside of our bubble. I don't always do that that well, and and the last two years I've been so obsessed with the humanitarian disaster that is the COVID lockdowns. Um, probably seventy percent of the shows have really focused on that. Um, uh, a, a one that I just did that's that's pretty cool. Um, to that the theme of transpartisanship is Janine Youngs, who is a, a civil liberties attorney, a former Bernie Sanders supporter who is now a libertarian because of lockdown. She can't believe um, from, from sort of a, a lefty bleeding heart perspective what they're doing to us and what they're doing to people at the margin because of lockdowns. So, and I think I think there's a window of opportunity there to reach people. Left and right that are repelling against this, the authoritarianism of the lockdowns and the, and, the, and the carelessness of it um, that that should be a space where all of us could could uh, think sort of ecumenically about how to grow the movement um, and so that so my a long answer but you know on Liberty is sort of morphing into that um, you know the, the revolution against authoritarianism. And I hope to find people across the spectrum that are sort of in that space right now.
0: Yeah, that's something I've been trying to reinforce is just that, especially this, this the lockdowns, the pandemics, um, the policies underneath the pandemic, like it, it has been transpartisan. It It's not a right or left issue. Um, I think a lot of people think that it is a right issue, but it doesn't, there's nothing about it that would make it specifically right wing. Um, there are people that are being targeted on both sides. Uh, I think that you know there are more of the there are the anti-vax portions of the left, um, and they they've been around for a long time. So really, we should try to reach out to all sides and try to unite underneath this. But um, yeah, if there's anything else that you want to say, please do, and uh, let people
1: know where they can find your stuff. Um, yeah, if you're interested, spend some time at FreeThePeople.org, um, and and we publish. All of our video content on on multiple platforms, and you're you're likely to find it wherever you consume content. But it's also organized on our website, which is basically a video channel. So if you're if you're interested in the deadly isms and, and we've done a whole series on on the, the tragedy of socialism, um, we've produced a ton of different documentaries about all sorts of subjects. Um, it's it's all meant for the liberty curious. Um, and and for those of us who are already sort of converted pro-liberty people, um, there might be something there about, about how to communicate these ideas in a way that's persuasive outside of our own political tribe.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so
1: much for coming on. It's been great. Yeah, this has been a blast. Thanks a lot. It's the